Okay. Hello and welcome to Sport Professor Podcast, a show for the sports student Van who wants to learn more about the underpinnings of the sporting world. I'm your professor, Dr. Drew Sikansky, and today we will once again deep dive the intersection of law and the world of sports as we examine arguably one of the most influential laws in sport history, the Sherman Antitrust Act. Beginning with the history of the Gilded Age in America, we will then move to introduce the origins of the Sherman Antitrust Act before breaking down its legal components. From there, we will examine key cases filed against Major League Baseball, the National Football League, and Major League Soccer, focusing on how the courts have applied the law to various situations across numerous leagues. So, have you ever wondered what it means to say baseball has an antitrust exemption? Or wondered how leagues can structure themselves to skirt the law in sections of the Sherman Antitrust Act? Then this is the podcast for you. So just sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode of The Sport Professor Podcast. Today, I want to tackle one of the most important areas of law in sport, and that is antitrust law. While this is an area that's often overlooked in many sport management programs, especially at the undergraduate level, due to the fact that it's so complicated and dense, it is arguably the field of law that has had the biggest and most profound effect on all sports. Why? Because it has helped shape how the courts view sports. It's shaped how leagues are structured and how they operate. And it's also shaped the powers that the players have within those leagues. Since its inception in the early 1900s, a plethora of lawsuits have been filed claiming professional leagues are in violation of these laws, specifically the Sherman Antitrust Act. Before we dive into many of the most notable and well-known cases, though, we first need to have an understanding of the law itself. And as we so often do here, before we tackle the law specifically, I want to go back in time and discuss what was happening in the United States in the late 1800s that led to the passage of the Sherman Antitrust Act in 1890. Remember, in 1861, a civil war erupted in the United States, pitting the North against the South. And after four years of fighting, the war finally came to an end in 1865, and a period of prosperity ensued across much of the country, particularly in the northern and western parts of America. This period of prosperity caused author Mark Twain to label it the Gilded Age. What brought about this age of growth and wealth and good fortune? Well, in short, it was the railroads. You see, before the Civil War, rail travel was dangerous and difficult. However, in the 1860s, an individual named George Westinghouse invented the air brake. This was a device that allowed trains and later aircrafts and race cars to use air as a means of applying pressure to braking cylinders, slowing the train down to lower speeds more gradually. This revolutionary device made braking in trains, quote, safer and more precise and allowed railroads to operate at much higher speeds, end quote. In short, trains became much easier to control. And then soon after Westinghouse's invention, the Pullman sleeping car and dining cars were added to passenger trains. And all of a sudden, not only were trains safer, but they were also more comfortable and enjoyable for people to ride. And as a result, trains quickly became the preferred method of long-distance travel 
overtaking pass modes like stagecoach or horseback riding. This switch in transportation by train was also marked by the 1869 opening of the Transcontinental Railroad. This was a rail line that stretched from Sacramento, California to Omaha, Nebraska. The line was the product of seven years of work by two different companies, companies known as Union Pacific Railroad and Central Pacific. The two companies were actually chartered in 1862 by the United States Congress and the Pacific Railroad Act to create a rail line that connected the eastern part of the United States to the west. And as part of the charter, both companies received between $16,000 to $48,000 in government bonds per mile of track they laid. To give you some perspective, $16,000 in 1862 money is equivalent to half a million dollars today, and $48,000 is equivalent to $1.5 million. So in other words, each company for every mile of track they laid got between half a million and $1.5 million in today's money. But they didn't just get money. They also got the rights to the land on the side of the tracks. Up to 200 feet on each side of the track became the property of the railroad that laid the track. So if we do some quick math here, the railroad covered... 1,912 miles, which means between approximately $30.6 million and $91 million in 1862 was made by these railroads. To again, put that into perspective of what that would be today, if you just average those numbers, which gives us around $61 million, that means that the companies combined to make approximately $2 billion in today's money. And that's just the cash. Remember, they also got that ownership of that 200 feet of land on both sides, which some calculate added up to the government giving over 200 million acres of land to these two railroad companies. Not only did they receive all of this for completing the railroads, but the companies retained ownership over the lines and began transporting people and goods along them charging $150 for a first-class sleeper car ticket, which is approximately $4.8,000 in 2021 money to ride the whole line. That $150 got you from the westernmost to the easternmost or vice versa, and it only took five days to complete that trip. While this might seem like a significant amount of money, spending almost $5,000 to get across the country and spending five days, you have to remember that before the Transcontinental Railroad was built, it would take five to six months to complete that same trip via stagecoach and would cost you $1,000 or $32,000 in today's money. Altogether, then, it's easy to see how the expansion of the railroad, the new technology like the air brake, and improving the traveling conditions by adding a sleeper and diner cars gave Americans a relatively cheap, fast, and enjoyable form of travel, while at the same time allowing Union Pacific Railroads and Central Pacific to rake in vast amounts of money in land, making railroad and shipping tycoons out of individuals like Cornelius Vanderbilt and Jay Gold, and making those individuals wealthy beyond anyone's imagination. The expansion of the railroads during the Gilded Age occurred side by side with the second American Industrial Revolution contributing to even more growth and wealth and good fortune in that time frame. 
Most historians agree that this revolution occurred between 1870 and about 1914. This time in America was marked by a transition from an agrarian to an industrial society and a movement of people from the country to major cities like Boston, New York, Philadelphia, St. Louis, and Chicago. Why were people all flocking to the city? Jobs. Many farms were struggling both across America and around the world, and with, quote, advances in the creation of steel, chemicals, and electricity, end quote, it became much easier for factories to mass-produce consumer goods. So, for example, basic household goods like soap, butter, and clothes transitioned from being made at home to being produced in factories. Well, many people worked long hours to make money to support their families and buy these new factory-produced goods. They didn't make a lot of money doing it. If we transpose those individuals who worked in the factories with the people who owned the factories and businesses and the people who controlled the major commodities like oil, like steel that were needed to build and run the factories, people like John D. Rockefeller and Andrew Carnegie, and with those individuals, add in the shipping tycoons that we previously mentioned, who controlled the transportation of the produced goods, and you will find that the second American Industrial Revolution brought with it a growing economic divide in our country. But more importantly for our conversation today, the expansion of the railroads and the Industrial Revolution created not only powerful and wealthy men, but also powerful and rich companies. Companies like Carnegie Steel, which later became U.S. Steel and Standard Oil, that controlled and held such power over the steel and oil industry that they could easily crush competitors and then charge whatever they wanted for their product. For example, I want you to imagine this scenario. Let's say that you want to start a steel company. And let's say that you want to be in the manufacturing sector of it, meaning you want to go out and buy iron ore from a mine, and then you're going to bring that in. You're going to go through the smelting process, turning that iron ore into steel, forming it into different shapes that the consumers want, and you're going to ship that out. And people are going to pay you a decent amount of money for that product. So you have to put in a lot of work. You have to find a company that mines the perfect iron and strike a deal with them to mine that ore and then transport it to you. And let's say back in 1865, that's going to cost you about one cent per pound of iron. And then you have to find a railroad line that will ship that ore from where it's being mined all the way to your factory. And let's say that that railroad company is going to charge you two cents per pound that they ship. And then you have to convert that ore into steel. And that's going to cost you, let's say, five cents a pound. And then the railroads will ship it anywhere around the country, and they're going to charge you five cents to ship that. So all in, it's going to cost you about 13 cents to make one pound of steel. Well, after we figure out what the cost is going to be, we have to go and work some business connections. And we have to look at what Carnegie Steel is charging for their finished product. Because they're our main competitor. And based off what they're charging and based off of what our costs are, you decide that you're going to try to sell your steel for 40 cents a pound, making a profit of 27 cents per pound of steel you produce. This price, notably, is just under what Carnegie is currently charging. And as a result, you start to see a number of their customers drop them and come over to your company and start to buy your steel. And you start to make a good bit of money. The point of laying out this scenario isn't to focus on the numbers, but rather to focus on what happens next. In our economy, in our business world, what do you think Carnegie Steel is going to do? 
The company is losing clients left and right to you because you are charging, let's say, 50 cents less per pound than they are. You've undercut their price of steel, and they're pissed. Well, in a free market or a capitalistic society, we would expect that Carnegie would be forced to drop their price to at least what you're charging, which is 40 cents a pound. If they don't do that, they're not going to be competitive and they're going to keep losing customers. We might even expect them to drop the price slightly below what you're charging. Say they might drop it to 35 cents a pound to try to undercut you a little bit and get back some of that lost business. You would then, and your business would then, be forced to respond. And maybe you would have to drop, say, 34 cents a pound just to compete. And we would go back and forth. We might drop some price. They might drop some price. The idea being that these companies are forced to keep their prices low if they want to compete with other companies so they can stay in business. This idea is a fundamental principle of capitalism in a free market society. The idea that competition is good and benefits the consumer. So in this scenario, what actually would happen? We talked about what you might expect Carnegie to do, but in reality, what happened? Did the prices between your company and Carnegie's slowly go down over time as you competed for customers? Not exactly. Instead, an iteration of one of the following things would happen. First, when faced with competition, Carnegie Steel might go to a company you are working with, like The Mind, that's selling you the iron that you need, and they might buy up all the iron. Carnegie might go to them and say, hey, we'll pay double what that other company was paying you for all your iron ore. And then it really just becomes an issue of simple math. If you're selling something and someone offers you $100, and then another person comes in and offers you $200 for the exact same item, who are you going to sell to? Obviously, the person giving you more money. Carnegie knew this, and he knew that if he did this, you wouldn't have any iron, which means you couldn't make steel, so you have nothing to sell. And if you have nothing to sell, that means there's no one else competing against them that are charging less than him, so he can charge anything he wants. Outside of just going after the iron mine and binding up all the iron, Carnegie might also go and buy the mine itself. That way, you don't have the option of going back to the mine and saying, hey, I'll pay you more than Carnegie just offered you. If he owns the mine and he owns all the iron ore, now I have absolutely no way of getting iron. So my company is going to go bankrupt. It's going to fold. And this isn't just something that he did with the iron mines or iron ore. He could do the same thing with the railroads. He could, and he actually did, just go and start buying up railroads. This meant that he controlled what was put on the trains. Well, in 1890, if you make steel, you have no access to railways, then your ability to ship your product is substantially limited. It's the point where if you can't put your product on a train, you're going to go out of business. The other thing Carnegie can do, if he can't get the mine to sell him the ore, or buy all of it, or buy all the trains, is just drop his price lower than yours. Not just undercut you by a few cents a pound, like we mentioned in describing this situation, but rather undercutting your price significantly to the point where you cannot match. As we said, it costs you 13 cents a pound for you to make and sell your iron. And we said you sold it at 40 cents, so you made a profit of 27 cents a pound. Well, what if instead of Carnegie dropping his price to 35 cents a pound to compete with you, he just says, screw it, I'm only gonna charge 12 cents a pound. Well, if that happens, 
the companies needing steel are obviously going to go buy the steel from him because they're going to save a massive amount of money. And in all honesty, there isn't anything you can do about it. You can't undercut or match his price because by charging 12 cents, you're already losing money. You might be thinking though, well, wait, if Carnegie cuts his prices that low, wouldn't he lose profits too? And potentially wouldn't that operation at a loss put him out of business? And yes, you're 100% right. He stands to lose a significant amount of money if he cuts the price that much. However, Carnegie Steel is a massive company. It was the predecessor to U.S. Steel, which is the first corporation in the entire world with a market capitalization of over $1 billion. Compare that to your startup steel company. They dominate you in size and resources. So if they sell steel at 12 cents a pound, yes, they're probably going to lose money just like you would. The difference is they can afford to lose money for a month or a year or two or even five years. You can't. So all they have to do is wait you out. Wait for you to lose all your money and go out of business. Then, once you're gone, guess what they're going to do? They're just going to jack up their costs because there's no one to compete with them. And they're not just going to jack it up back to the 50 cents a pound that they were charging before you came around. No, no, no. Now they have to make up for the losses that they took to run you out of business. So they're going to raise it to 60 or 75 cents a pound. And now with no other businesses, they don't have anyone to compete with. So if a company needs steel, they have no choice but to pay that price. And the thing is, people need steel. It's an essential commodity, especially during this industrial revolution. Steel isn't like other products where people can just say, nope, it costs too much, I'm not going to pay for it. Or say, hey, I'm just going to use an alternative product to substitute in. Both of these things can't really happen because if I need steel to build buildings, to build cars, to build railroads, I have to have steel. Other supplies, other products, other commodities aren't going to substitute in. Since they need it, and since Carnegie is the only supplier of it since she just puts you out of business, companies will pay pretty much whatever Carnegie asks. Now, every once in a while, another steel manufacturing company might pop up to challenge them, but the same process is going to play out that we just talked about. And Carnegie Steel, which as I mentioned, later became U.S. Steel, was able to become not only one of the biggest companies in the world, but one of the biggest companies of all time. Similar things started to happen in other industries as well, not just the steel industry. And you have one or two companies controlling things like steel, oil, transportation, or railroads, leading to some of the richest people in history. Not just the richest of their time, the richest in history, including John D. Rockefeller, who, if we actually adjust his wealth for inflation, today, he would have a net worth of $400 billion. Again, just for comparison's sake, Jeff Bezos, the wealthiest person in the world today, he's only worth $186 billion. So while owners and stakeholders of these companies were becoming wealthy beyond imagination, the workers for these companies often dealt with poor working conditions, long hours, and little pay. To make matters even worse, the companies that controlled these important products and goods continued to drive competitors out of business, allowing them to continue to increase their cost of their items, making the cost of everything that dealt with their industry more expensive. For example, if you relied on the railroad to transport food across the country or state and the railroad faced no competition, then they could charge whatever they wanted to ship the food, generally leading to them charging a substantial amount. 
Well, that cost got passed on to the consumers, meaning the cost of milk, the cost of chicken, of corn, kept going up because they had to compensate how expensive it was to ship the product. All that to say, having only a few people or companies controlling products, goods, and services that were becoming an essential part of the society became extremely problematic, as were the poor working conditions facing many of the people that moved to the city during this Industrial Revolution looking for jobs and a better life. As such, in the late 1800s, we began to see a political revolt against large corporations. Workers began to form unions and stage protests and go on strike as they fought for workers' rights. And more important for our conversation today, Congress started to pass laws to protect American businesses and the American people from massive corporations that ruled the day. Maybe the most important law passed in 1890, the Sherman Antitrust Act. Later amended in 1914 by what was called the Clayton Act, the goal of the Sherman Antitrust Act was to break up trusts and monopolies. To fully understand the act, we have to go through and define a few key terms before diving into legal interpretations. First, we need to understand what a trust is. Before we do that though, you need to remember that what we call a trust today is different from how the term was used in 1890. So with that in mind, According to ourdocuments.gov, a trust, quote, was an agreement by which stakeholders in several companies transferred their shares to a single set of trustees. In exchange, the stockholders received a certificate entitling them to a specific share of the consolidated earnings of the jointly managed companies, end quote. Put simply, imagine there's seven different companies all selling oil. They compete with each other, which keeps the prices down for consumers. However, imagine now if they were to all come together and agree to combine their seven companies into one. And let's say that they agree that they will split the profits of all the combined companies amongst the seven people who owned each individual company. Doing this means that there's no competition. And as we just learned, no competitions means that you can charge whatever you want with oil. So yes, each of those seven owners has to split their revenue with the others, but the revenue of the combined companies under the one corporate umbrella, what we call a trust, that revenue is so much higher than any one company could generate themselves because there's no competition in the marketplace that each person ends up making more money than ever. And while they're making more and more and more money, the consumer is being hurt more and more because there is no one to challenge them and they have to pay whatever it costs to get that oil. So creating a trust like this or bringing together seven or more companies under one corporate umbrella has the potential to lead to the second key term that we need to understand before going forward, and that is monopolies. So what are monopolies or what is a monopoly? According to investopia.com, a monopoly quote, refers to when a company and its product offerings dominate a sector or industry. More specifically, a monopoly is characterized by the absence of competition, which can lead to quote, high costs for consumers, inferior products and services, and corrupt behavior. A company that dominates a business sector or industry can use that dominance to its advantage and at the expense of others. It can create artificial scarcity, fix prices, 
and culminate natural laws of supply and demand, end quote. I want you to think back to the steel scenario that we went through earlier. Carnegie Steel and a number of other smaller companies in the steel sector first set up a trust, combining their businesses into one and sharing the revenue accordingly. This trust or new company was called U.S. Steel. As we laid out, U.S. Steel was so dominant in the steel industry that it was nearly impossible for other companies to form and compete with them. Why? Because U.S. Steel held a monopoly on the industry. They could run you out of business and then, after they did all that, jack up the prices and charge ridiculous amounts because everyone that needed steel had no option but to buy it from them since they held a monopoly. So they could control the prices. They could fix them. They could create artificial scarcity saying we're at an all-time low of steel and thus make people pay more without knowing if that's a true statement or not. Finally, the last thing, term, or phrase that we really need to understand before we start talking about the specific legal interpretation of the Sherman Antitrust Act and some of the key lawsuits is something called interstate commerce. Remember, the Sherman Antitrust Act was passed by the federal government, which means that it was written and passed through the legislature and then signed into law by the president or the head of the executive branch. The powers of the federal government, both the legislature and the executive branch, as well as the judicial, are all laid out in the Constitution. Specifically, Article I of the Constitution talks about the powers of the legislature. And if you were to go and read through all of Article 1, you would come across Section 8, Clause 3, which states that the legislature has the power to, quote, regulate commerce with foreign nations and among the several states and with Indian tribes, end quote. Meaning, the federal government has the power to control any type of activity that involves moving things across state lines. And if you stop and think about this, this actually makes a lot of sense. Because let's say that you are in Tennessee and you have a jewelry making business. You make all of your products in Tennessee and let's say you set up a small store in Tennessee and you sell your products just in that store. It would make sense that you would have to follow Tennessee laws because you're living and working in their jurisdiction. Let's say that you start to have some success, so you decide to set up an online store and start selling your jewelry to people who live in Kentucky and Texas and California and all other 49 states. Since you're transporting your product via the mail to all these different locations in all these different states, a question arises. Does each state have the individual power to regulate you in what your business is? Well, yes, but that can get extremely complicated. It can become a massive headache. Just imagine how big of a headache it would be because 50 states are going to have 50 different laws saying 50 different things potentially. That would make it almost impossible for you to be successful in selling your product and moving it throughout the country. So instead of this, what the founding fathers did is they wrote in the Constitution that anything that's happening between states, any business that moves their product from one state to another or crosses state lines, that could be moving your resources from one state to another or shipping your product from one state to another or a thousand other things. But any of that business that we do is regulated by the federal government. It is their job according to Section 8, Clause 3. Why does the Constitution lay this out? 
Because the federal government wanted to make sure that there was open and free-flowing trade between the states, which they realized could only happen if the states were barred from obstructing it. Altogether then, the point of the Sherman Antitrust Act was to prohibit the formation of trust and monopolies in any other form of companies working together to fix prices and hurt the consumer. It did this to help protect the consumer and other small businesses from massive companies that had become a regular part of society in the late 1800s. As Infestopia says, quote, the act's purpose was to promote economic fairness and competitiveness and to regulate interstate commerce, which had become increasingly important with the expansion of the railroad and the Industrial Revolution, end quote. Now that we've laid out a little what was happening in the Gilded Age of America and discuss how the expansion of the railroad with some new technology, as well as the second industrial revolution, led to a boom in these massive corporations and rich individuals, providing some context for why new laws were being discussed when it came to how big companies could be, and also move to define three key terms, trust, monopolies, and interstate commerce, we can move to discussing the Sherman Antitrust Act itself. And the act is divided into three sections, the first two of which are important for our conversation today. Section one of the Sherman Antitrust Act states, quote, every contract combination in the form of trust or otherwise, or conspiracy in restraint of trade or commerce among the several states or with foreign nations is declared illegal, end quote. Put much more simply, Section 1 outlaws businesses from doing anything that unreasonably restricts trade, whether that's forming a trust or working with other companies to fix prices or anything else. According to the law, if a person is found to be in violation of Section 1, then they are subject to a $5,000 fine and a year in jail. Additionally, if a company or individual suffers losses because of the formation of a trust, or because a company is found to be in violation of Section 1, then they're allowed to be sued by the individual suffering the damages for what's called treble damages, meaning they get three times the losses they suffered. So if a trust cost a business a million dollars, then the business that was put out by that trust can sue for damages and get $3 million in return. When we're assessing if a violation of Section 1 has occurred, the courts adopt three different approaches that they can use. First, the court adopted what is called the rule of reason defense. In this approach, the court looks at the entire organization's and its practices to determine whether the practices have had an adverse effect or anti-competitive effect on competition. In other words, they weigh the practices' pro-competitive effects against the anti-competitive benefits to the consumer. Now, this sounds quite complicated, but it's really not. All that we're saying is that the courts look at the company and the product being sold. They then assess the marketplace and how much power the company has in that marketplace. Next, they will move to examine if the actions the company has taken create any anti-competitive effects, meaning they look to see if the consumers or anyone else are hurt by the actions the company has taken. How can a consumer be hurt? The prices are so much higher that the consumer is now forced to pay that. If there have been anti-competitive effects, prices being jacked up because of the formation of a trust, 
then the courts will next move to ask the defendant, the company being accused of being in violation of the act, they will ask them to show if there was any pro-competitive justification for the action. The key determination of finding of a violation occurs comes down to determination of if the actions are harmful to the consumers or if the actions are helpful in stimulating competition that helps the consumers. The rule of reason defense has been applied throughout the sporting world as players have taken lawsuits against leagues claiming that the leagues are in violation of the Sherman Antitrust Act, and they claim that their actions have caused harm to the players. Classic examples include cases challenging the player's draft, free agency, salary restriction, and revenue sharing. For example, in 1961, an NBA player named Molinus was caught by the league gambling on games. As gambling was against the NBA rules, he was suspended from the league. However, he didn't take the suspension lying down as he sued the league, alleging that the rule was in violation of the Sherman Antitrust Act. He claimed that the NBA was the only professional basketball league, and as such, their practice of suspending players for gambling had a negative or anti-competitive effect on his ability to play professional basketball. Or as he said in his word, quote, expulsion from the league restrained trade because I had no economic alternative to playing basketball in the NBA, end quote. He's saying that the rule denied him the ability to play professional basketball because there was no competition. And when we're using this rule of reason approach, we will look at that side of the argument. We will examine the anti-competitive effects of an organization or a rule or an action. But we don't stop there. We then have to move after looking at the anti-competitive effects to looking at the pro competitive benefits of the rule. In other words, what good can come from this rule? And when the courts assess that, in the end, they determined that the restraint on players from gambling was reasonable as, quote, the NBA had a legitimate interest in banning gambling since gambling on games might cause the product to be fraudulent, end quote. That is to say, if players are allowed to gamble on games, they might be enticed to throw a game or two. And that idea of throwing a game or two would create a fraudulent product that consumers, our fans, are paying to see. So when we're using the rule of reason, we look at both the anti-competitive effect of an action and the pro-competitive benefits of that same action. And the courts are asked to weigh the two. If the pro-competitive outweighs the anti-competitive, we deem it to be legal and not in violation of the Sherman Antitrust Act. If the anti-competitive outweighs the pro-competitive, then we deem it to be in violation. But that's not the only approach. The second approach the courts can use to determine if Section 1 is broken is what's called the illegal per se rule. Unlike the rule of reason, which looks at both the pro and anti-competitiveness of an action or a rule, the per se rule is used in cases where the actions of the company have no benefits to competition. So if the company engages, let's say, in price fixing, the illegal per se rule would be applied because we know that price fixing has no pro-competitive benefits, that it only harms the consumer. So all we need to do then is look at the anti-competitive benefits to determine if there are any and as such if the organization is in breach of the Sherman Antitrust Act. Similar to the illegal per se rule, we have this third approach, which is known as the quick look rule of reason. Just like the illegal per se, using the quick look helps us avoid this more long in-depth analysis that the rule of reason approach calls for. In the quick look, the court assumes 
that there is an anti-competitive aspect to the actions. So now all they have to do is assess the pro-competitive benefits of those actions to again determine if one outweighs the other. All of that, those three approaches, the rule of reason, illegal per se, the quick look, those are a way of assessing section one of the Sherman Antitrust Act, which as a reminder is designed to make trust or working together to fix prices illegal. Section two of the Sherman Antitrust Act deals with monopolies. And it states, quote, every person who shall monopolize or attempt to monopolize or combine or conspire with another person or persons to monopolize any part of the trade or commerce among the several states or with foreign nations shall be deemed guilty of a felony. Meaning quite simply, it is illegal to have a monopoly or try to create one. To determine whether a company possesses a monopoly, the courts will assess two different questions. First, does the company have, quote, the power to control market prices or exclude competitors, end quote? And second, who is adversely affected in the market by the anti-competitive actions? If it is determined that a monopoly exists, the courts will then examine if the company unlawfully used their power to restrict competition. Over time, the Sherman Antitrust Act and later the Clayton Antitrust Act of 1914, which added further regulations to U.S. business practices prohibiting such things like anti-competitive mergers, discriminatory pricing, and more, both have been at the heart of multiple high-profile, high-impact sport court cases. This includes several court cases from baseball, like the Federal Baseball Club of Baltimore Inc. versus the National League of Professional Baseball Clubs, and Flood versus Khan, and Toulson versus New York Yankees. It also includes a few football cases, such as United States Football League versus the National Football League, and then a smattering of other cases in sports like soccer and hockey. Probably the biggest area in sports which has seen cases claiming that a legal organization is in violation of the Sherman Antitrust Act or the Clayton Act is actually the National Collegiate Athletic Association or the NCAA. For the rest of the podcast, I want to focus on the most historic cases in baseball, football, and soccer. We will then follow that up with another separate podcast focusing specifically on the antitrust claims made against the NCA. And we will talk in that separate podcast about the current lawsuit that is being considered by the United States Supreme Court and the potential implications of the ruling. But in order to understand those current claims in the NCA, we need to first build an understanding of how the courts have historically viewed antitrust claims related to sport. So let's go back to the very first and arguably one of the most important antitrust court cases in sport history. That is Federal Baseball Club of Baltimore, Inc. versus National League of Professional Baseball Clubs et al. This case actually begins in the mid-1910s with both the National League of Professional Baseball Clubs and the American League of Professional Baseball Clubs working together within Major League Baseball in going to multiple ball clubs in what was a competitor rival league called the Federal League. And they went to these teams and offered to buy them out. The majority of the owners in the Federal Leagues just sold their teams to the National American League and took their money and ran. Or if they didn't want to sell, they were given the rights to essentially move the team from the Federal League into Major League Baseball. Because you see, the Federal League was seen as a major competitor to MLB. They competed for players, for fans, for teams in cities across the country. 
So instead of just going head-to-head -head with the Federal League, Major League Baseball decided it would just be easier and faster to flex their muscles as the dominant league for professional baseball and buy up all the competitors. This practice was actually nothing new, as if we go all the way back to the late 1800s, competitive leagues in baseball would often pop up all over the country. Those leagues with the most success became dominant. This is how the National League actually started. They were the first major successful professional league that formed. And competitive leagues started to pop up. But the National League was so much more dominant that they could run them out of business, just as the Carnegie Steel example that we talked about earlier. However, when the American League formed, they were giving them a good run for the money. They were stealing players who were under contract. They were going back and forth. The National League was taking players. They were competing to be in different cities. And instead of just running each other out of business, they decided, let's just combine and form one structure with two subsets. We'll call it Major League Baseball, and we can each keep control and make our own rules, but we'll play one series known as the World Series at the end of the year. And in doing that, they were able to not only be successful with each other, but keep all other leagues at bay. And oftentimes, just go and buy them out, just like they try to do with the Federal League. So what's the big difference in this case? It's just the year that it all happened. Remember, the Sherman Antitrust Act gets passed in 1890. So by the time 1915 comes around and the Federal League finally folds, the Sherman Antitrust Act is on the books, and that act gave the owners of the Baltimore Terrapins a legal avenue to challenge the National and American League, as well as Major League Baseball as a whole. So what's the grievance that they filed with the court? They said that all three entities, the National League, the American League, and what they called the National Commission or Major League Baseball, they said that they acted as monopoly and that they rooted out market competition. This, the Baltimore Baseball Club argued, caused $80,000 in damages, which, according to the AAA rules of the Sherman Antitrust Act, would mean that the team was entitled to $240,000 or approximately $3.8 million in 2021 money. This case made it all the way up to the United States Supreme Court, who issued a somewhat surprising ruling, which centered around one of those three key terms that we already talked about, interstate commerce. In issuing the ruling, the court said, quote, the business is giving exhibitions of baseball, which are purely state affairs. It is true that in order to obtain these exhibitions, the great popularity that they have achieved competitions must be arranged between clubs from different cities and states. But the fact that in order to give the exhibitions, the league must induce free persons to cross state lines and must arrange and pay them for doing so is not enough to change the character of the business. According to the distinction insisted upon in Hooper v. California, the transport is merely incident, not the essential thing. That to which it is incident, the exhibition although made for money, would not be called trade of commerce in the commonly accepted use of those words. As it is put by the defendant, personal effort not related to the production is not the subject of commerce. That which in it is consumption is not commerce, does not become commerce among the states because the transportation that we have mentioned takes place. End quote. In other words, what the court is saying is that baseball itself does not constitute commerce. Also, baseball itself does not involve interstate actions. So if there's no interstate 
and there's no commerce, then baseball becomes exempt from the Sherman Antitrust Act. More specifically, they said baseball is just a game that involves people playing against one another. It is not a business. It is a, quote, professional service presenting local exhibitions, end quote. They added that, yes, players travel across state lines to play, but that is purely incidental and not an essential aspect of the game. According to the Supreme Court and what they wrote, the issue at hand is a state issue. It is not a federal issue. Therefore, the Supreme Court doesn't have jurisdiction over the claim. And more importantly, because it is a state issue, the Sherman Antitrust Act doesn't apply. Now, this ruling that the Sherman Antitrust Act does not apply to baseball, or said conversely, that baseball is exempt from the Sherman Antitrust Act, laid an important groundwork that was later challenged in 1953 in the court case Toulson versus New York Yankees, and then challenged again in 1972 in another case called Flood versus Kahn. Both of these lawsuits challenge something called the reserve clause in Major League Baseball contracts. We've talked about this clause in a past podcast, but just to recap in case you forgot, the reserve clause was a clause in sport contracts that allowed teams to keep players for as long as they wanted. So let's say that you have a three-year contract with a baseball team that pays you $10 million a year. Once those three years are over, the reserve clause states that the team has the right to bring you back for another year for a percentage of your previous year's salary. Generally, it was 80%. The key, though, is you have absolutely no say in it. It doesn't matter if you want to go play for another team or not. Basically, the team owned its players. Because after the players signed that initial contract and made their decision about where they wanted to play, it was the team now that got to decide whether they were going to sign them for another year. The players couldn't decide not to come back. The only option was not to play. Likewise, if a team didn't want you anymore, they could trade you and send you anywhere in the country to play, and you had no say in it. Well, unsurprisingly, players did not like this. So in 1951, a player named Earl Toulson had his contract purchased by a minor league team named the Portland Beavers, and he didn't want to go play in Portland. He refused to report and instead decided to sue the New York Yankees in Major League Baseball, challenging the 1922 ruling that baseball was exempt from the Sherman Antitrust Act. He argued that the MLB held a monopoly on baseball and that the reserve clause illegally restricted the movement of players in an open and free market. As with the federal baseball club lawsuit, the Toulson case made it all the way up to the United States Supreme Court, who heard and issued a decision in 1953. Their decision was only one paragraph and held a 7-2 majority vote. And in that paragraph, they said the following, quote, the court affirmed the decisions of the lower courts, noting that if it were evils in the field of professional baseball clubs, which now weren't application to it of the antitrust laws, it should be by legislation. According to the court, Congress has had the ruling in Federal Baseball Club of Baltimore versus National League of Professional Baseball Clubs under consideration, but has not seen fit to bring such business under these laws by legislation having prospective effect. Thus, it can be said that Congress had no intention of including the business of baseball within the scope of the federal antitrust laws, end quote. In other words, just like with Federal Baseball Club, the Supreme Court in Toulson ruled that baseball was exempt of the Sherman Antitrust Act and all other antitrust laws. 
Similarly, in 1972, an individual named Kurt Flood sued the owner of the St. Louis Cardinals, an individual named Bowie Kahn, and the commissioner of baseball after he was traded to the New York Yankees, again claiming Major League Baseball and the owners were in violation of antitrust laws. Just like Toulson, Flood claimed the fact that baseball's reserve clause and their ability to trade players from one team to another against the player's wishes violated antitrust laws. However, just like Toulson and just like Federal Baseball Club, the Supreme Court ruled that the previous legal president still held and again noted that it is on Congress, not the courts, to take away this antitrust exemption. Finally, in 1998, Congress tackled the issue in passing the Curt Flood Act. The act classified the antitrust exemption for baseball, noting that the exemption only applied to the business of baseball, but not to players or labor issues. The law specifically states, quote, it is the purpose of this legislation to state that Major League Baseball players are covered under the antitrust laws, i.e. Major League Baseball players will have the same rights under the antitrust laws as do other professional athletes, e.g. football and basketball players, along with the provisions that makes it clear that the passage of this act does not change the application of antitrust laws in any other context or with respect to any other persons or entity. End quote. Notice something important in this wording. The legislature notes that other sports, like football and basketball, have been treated different than baseball over the years. A prime example of this is the 1986 lawsuit, United States Football Club versus the National Football League. For those of you who might not remember, the United States Football League, or the USFL, was launched in 1983 as the brainchild of David Dixon. Dixon, over the course of 15 years, hatched and executed a plan for a spring football league. He got 12 cities to agree to have teams and then signed a television contract with ABC Sports and ESPN, then two separate companies, for $13 million for the first year and $16 million for the second. Though some teams and stadiums had some ownership issues, overall, the first year was moderately a success. Games averaged around 25,000 fans and pulled in about a 6 rating on ABC and about a 3.3 rating on ESPN. Just for comparison, the NFL at the same time was averaging about 61,000 fans a game and had a TV rating of about 17. In addition to these kind of decent numbers, the league was also able to get a number of big-time sponsors, including but not limited to Anheuser-Busch, Buick, Chevy, Dodge, Honda, and Miller Lite. The USFL wasn't just raking in money, but Dixon believed that it was off to a good start and that with the right strategic plan, they could continue to grow and actually carve out their own niche. However, the league quickly started to face a number of difficult decisions after year one. Dixon had planned for the league to grow slowly. and He wanted it to gradually expand to new cities, implement a salary cap to keep teams from spending exorbitant amounts of money on players. And he also wanted to have a regional draft to try to keep college players in that local environment where they had already built up that fan base. Not everyone shared Dixon's views, though. There were three specific owners, an individual named J.W. Oldenburg, an individual named Eddie Einhow, and someone you might know named Donald Trump, ended up convincing the other owners that the idea of slow growth was flawed and that it would not lead to success. So instead of following Dixon's original plan that he put 15 years into building, they decided to go all in and start spending money and pursuing star players so they could compete directly with the NFL. This led to players like Steve Young, Jim Kelly, and Reggie White, individuals like Herschel Walker, all signing massive deals with USFL. 
While these star athletes brought attention to the league, it did not show in the attendance or in the televisions, and teams began to really struggle to pay their bills. Oldenburg, one of the individuals that convinced them to go with this strategy, ended up going bankrupt, and the league took over control of his team, the Arizona Wranglers. Another owner named Ted Dijek lost millions in his second year, and then just decided to part ways with his team and cut his losses. The Pittsburgh Maulers folded at the same time after losing what was reported $10 million in year two of operations. So teams began to combine and move to new homes, all in a desperate attempt to stay afloat. Attendance dropped again in the third year, 1985, and after the season, more teams like the Boston Breakers folded or merged like Denver and Jacksonville, as well as Houston and New Jersey. Needless to say, the league was starting to hemorrhage money, and they faced a lot of difficult decisions after that third year was complete. They either could keep playing football in the spring and continue to try to build the product and carve out a niche in the marketplace like the original plan said, or they could move their season to the fall and go head-to-head with the NFL and hope to try to force the NFL to merge with them. Again, Einhorn and Trump, the two owners with the most money, seemed to persuade all the other owners that moving to the fall, the NFL would have no choice but to merge with USFL and buy all the owners out. It's reported that the two owners, Einhorn and Trump, believed that such a merger would result in each USFL owner getting paid $70 million for their team, which at the time was how much a new NFL team cost. As most of you probably know, though, this calculation was way off. And instead of beginning merger talks, the NFL went to their TV partners and they pressured them to keep the USFL off air. Why? Because the NFL knew that if the USFL couldn't get good TV money, they would have a hard time growing their fan base and they would have a hard time making enough money to pay their players. And eventually they would fold. The USFL didn't just sit there and take this, though. They launched a lawsuit against the NFL claiming that the league was in violation of both Section 1 and Section 2 of the Sherman Antitrust Act. The short of all this is that the USFL felt that the NFL, quote, had conspired to restrain trade and did in fact monopolize the market for professional football by, among other things, jeopardizing the USFL's broadcasting contracts with major television networks, end quote. Basically, they were saying that since there was no competition in fall professional football for the NFL, they were able to go and use their considerable power to influence the television networks, thus making it impossible for competitors like them, like the USFL, to enter into that market. Basically, they were claiming that the NFL was doing what Rockefeller and Carnegie did back in the late 1800s. And the crazy thing is, unlike the baseball lawsuits, The court actually agreed with USFL, and they ruled that the NFL had the power to control the market and exclude competition, thus giving them monopoly powers. Furthermore, they found that they used this power to unlawfully restrict competition. This was a massive win for the USFL in theory. The only problem was the court said it was incredibly hard, if not impossible, to determine the damages of these actions. Remember, in an antitrust case, you get treble damages or three times the damages. So in the case filing, the USFL claimed that the actions of the NFL cost them $567 million, which when you triple it, means the NFL would have to pay out $1.7 billion to the USFL. Here, the jury did not agree. They pointed to a number of things that the USFL did to hurt themselves, noting, yes, the NFL was a, quote, duly adjudicated illegal monopoly, end quote. 
But most of the problems they said that the USFL faced were due to mismanagement, not the monopoly of the NFL. For example, the decision to move the season from the spring to the fall and the decision to spend large amounts of money on star players had nothing to do with the NFL's monopoly and all to do with the mismanagement of the USFL by the owners. And as a result, the jury decided that the USFL shouldn't be rewarded for their own mismanagement. They noted that yes, the NFL was a monopoly and they had used that power as a monopoly to exert pressure on television networks, but that wasn't the reason that the USFL failed, they said. The reason they failed was their own actions. So the jury found for the USFL, but only ended up awarding them $1 in damages, which according to the law was tripled to $3. While the USFL might have won the case in name, the NFL won the case in practice. And as a result, the USFL folded right after the verdict was announced. Following this NFL loss in the lawsuit to the USFL, professional sport leagues outside of baseball, which held this antitrust exemption that we've discussed, began growing weary of facing similar legal challenges and outcomes. Leagues had to start becoming more creative with how they approached antitrust laws. This led to leagues structuring themselves as what is called single entities to try to become immune from Section 1 of the Sherman Antitrust Act. In a single entity league structure, the owners invest in the league rather than a team, and they formulate a central administration for business and decision making. According to Cotton and Woolahan, quote, The logic is that with centrally administered entities operated by owner investors, there is a single entity. Thus, the league is unable to contact, combine, or conspire to restrain trade in a manner that leagues made up of numerous individually owned teams might, end quote. The idea of a single entity league is in contrast to what is called joint venture structures, which are associations of, quote, two or more persons formed to carry out a single business enterprise for the profit for which purpose they combine their property, money, effects, skills, and knowledge, end quote. Throughout history, most leagues were viewed by the coins as joint ventures because, quote, a competitive team-based sporting event necessarily requires multiple indistinct teams and some level of cooperations among those teams, end quote. Interestingly, three of the four major professional sports leagues, the NBA, the NFL, and the NHL, have all been ruled both joint ventures and single entities depending on the situation. In Chicago Professional Sports Limited Partnership versus National Basketball Association 1996, the courts ruled that each antitrust claim must be evaluated on a case-by-case basis. So in certain instances, leagues can act as a single entity, such as negotiating league-wide broadcasting deals or sponsorships, while also acting as a joint venture when signing in or trading players. This decision was then upheld in 2008 in American Needle Inc. versus the NFL. When the Supreme Court ruled the NFL was a single entity when negotiating licensing deals with Reebok and thus not in violation of Section 1 of the Sherman Antitrust Act. Around the same time, the NBA and NFL were facing these lawsuits dealing with being a single entity versus a joint venture. A professional soccer league was formed in the United States. The league was named Major League Soccer or the MLS. And in setting the league up, 
the MLS had people invest in the league rather than investing in the teams. Doing this meant that the league owned all the teams and controlled all league activities. They set the schedules, they negotiated all stadium leases, broadcast rights and sponsorships. They even paid all the salaries of the players while also controlling player movement. It is this last little bit, the fact that they controlled players' movement that did not sit well with the players, just like in Toulson and just like in the flood lawsuits. And so in 2002, eight players led by Ian Frazier brought a lawsuit against Major League Soccer claiming, just like Toulson and Flood did with Major League Baseball, that Major League Soccer was in violation of the Sherman Antitrust Act and the Clayton Act. The main arguments the players made was that the teams within the leagues and their investors were conspiring to fix the salaries of players and restrict the amount of money players could make and restrict their ability to move from one team to another. They said or claimed that this was in violation of Section 1 of the Sherman Antitrust Act. The league countered Frazier's argument by pointing out that the league could not conspire with anyone since it was a single entity. You see, in order to conspire, you need multiple actors or multiple individuals or multiple organizations, and you need those things to work together towards a common goal. Here, the players claim that the goal was to restrict the amount of money that an individual could own. So if the MLS is a single company and not a joint venture or not a collection of 10 separate teams all working together, if it's a single company, then it's really impossible for the league to conspire since there's no one for them to conspire with. In the end, just like with Toulson and Flood, the court ruled for the MLS. The difference in the Frazier case, though, was that the court recognized that the league was a single entity, thus making it exempt from Section 1 of the Sherman Antitrust Act. Well, remember, in Toulson and Flood, the court stated Major League Baseball was not interstate or commerce, and thus the Sherman Antitrust Act didn't apply. Hopefully our discussion today has not only helped you understand the history and reasons behind the enactment of antitrust legislation in the late 1800s and early 1900s, but also taught you a little about the legal elements of the Sherman Antitrust Act and shown you how it has been used in sports over time. Well, there are other lawsuits that have been filed against leagues by competitive leagues like Philadelphia World Hockey Inc. versus Philadelphia Hockey Club and other lawsuits where team owners in leagues have actually sued their own league like Los Angeles Raiders versus National Hockey League. The cases we've highlighted today do well to lay out how the courts have applied the Sherman Antitrust Act to various situations in sports throughout history. These verdicts have been some of the biggest and most influential court decisions in history and have had a massive effect on the current structure and operations of all professional sport leagues around the United States. For example, the 1922 Federal Baseball Clubs of Baltimore, Inc. versus National League of Professional Baseball Clubs et al. established that baseball was exempt from the Sherman Antitrust Act, which was reiterated in both Toulson and Flood. However, the flood case led to Congress clarifying that exemption to cover only baseball operations and not labor. If you follow the news very carefully today, whenever baseball comes in the crosshairs of the government, congressmen and congresswomen suggest that legislation be enacted that revokes this antitrust exemption. Most recently, in 2021, after Major League Baseball pulled the All-Star game from Atlanta due to new restrictive voting laws, Representative Jeff Duncan of South Carolina and Senator Mike Lee of Utah filed legislation to end Major League Baseball's antitrust exemption. As Mike Lee stated, quote, Consumers benefit when businesses compete, and baseball is no different. In fact, a professional sports league should understand best of all the benefits of competition. 
Instead, Major League Baseball has used its judiciary-fabricated antitrust immunity to suppress wages and divide up markets for decades, contact that is plainly illegal and sometimes criminal in any other industry." End quote. Moreover, almost every time a new professional sport league forms to challenge one of the established professional leagues, they threaten to sue the established leagues on ground that the league is in violation of the Sherman Act. We saw this play out in the USFL versus NFL case, and even learned today that the USFL won the claim as the court found the NFL was a monopoly that utilized its powers to restrict free trade. However, that victory for the USFL was to little avail as the amount of money they were awarded was so minuscule they folded after the judgment was issued. Knowing that such lawsuits are likely, we ended our conversation by showing how leaks have become smarter over the years and structured themselves as single entities versus the traditional joint ventures. As we saw in the American Needle versus NFL and Frazier versus MLS cases, structuring your league so that your league office controls all league-wide businesses rather than having individual teams control such things makes it so it is impossible for the league to conspire against other actors. This saves the league from claims that they're in violation of Section 1 of the Sherman Antitrust Acts and helps them avoid litigation. All that to say, we have covered all aspects of the application of antitrust law to sports, except one, and that is the application of the Sherman Antitrust Act to the NCA. So, if you want to learn more about how antitrust law has historically been applied to college sport, and discover how the 2021 Supreme Court antitrust lawsuit has the potential to change college sport forever, check out episode 57 of the Sport Professor podcast, entitled Sport Law NCA versus the world. If you have any questions about anything that we've learned today or antitrust law and its application to sport in general, please feel free to reach out to us on Instagram at The Sport Professor. Follow us, get the latest updates on upcoming podcasts and learn more about the world of sports. Until next time though, we hope you enjoyed this episode of The Sport Professor Podcast.